listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now this week's sermon in the series, Identity, a study on the book of Ephesians. me to do so, but at the same time, I recognize absolute brokenness and inability on my own to do anything. I look back at my life, I look back at my week, and I see sin, and I see failures, but yet I see a a risen Savior who has redeemed me and rescued me. And so I just ask for your name's sake, Father, and for your Son, and by your Spirit, that you would empower me to teach your people in a way that there's life change and encouragement and understanding. Um, Lord, we, we uh, see a broken culture, which we are part of, but we see a, a risen Savior who gives us hope. And so may our hope be fixed on Him this morning. Um, I just ask you to move, to give ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of your word. For your name's sake, I pray. Amen. Thanks. You guys have a seat. It'd be awesome. And there's some seats down front, guys, if they want to send them down. There's a couple seats down front. Well, many of you, if you've been here for a little bit of time, you know we've been in this book of Ephesians, uh, studying through it. Uh, Our series has been called Identity, as we look at who we are in Christ. And so if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're one of those who reads ahead, you've been waiting for this text. You've been like, "Uh uh-huh, 518, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear it. Um, Because we're going to talk about some some manhood and womanhood issues, and we're going to talk about marriage and singleness and all these things. Um, And you made sure your spouse was here today. You've been fasting and praying. I know. Um, And and the reality is the scripture has a lot to say about marriage. It has a lot to say about being male and female. and has a lot to say about being single. And we will talk about those things in the context really mostly primarily of marriage because that's where the text is going to go. But what we want to be careful of is this. We have a lot of single people and what churches tend to do is exalt marriage as a higher standard and a higher kind of position than singleness. And that is not true. Uh, singleness is a, for some, a, a giftedness and a calling and a season of life that is very important. And so we want to be careful that we don't exalt married and children up to a, a more spiritual level than singleness. Because God has gifted specific people to be single for the kingdom. And he has called them to that. And we want to make sure that we understand that. We also want to, don't want us to, to put people who have maybe struggles in their marriage or even on their second marriage or third marriage at some lower tier as if they are lesser Christian because because maybe in their past there was some struggle or even a divorce. Look, if David can be a man after God's own heart and he was an adulterer who killed his, his basically his adulterous husband to cover his sin, if the Apostle Paul can be killing Christians and then become the great Apostle who writes the words of Scripture, then there is no unredeemable person or situation. The Gospel restores... So we want to see that accurately and biblically. Yes, there's decisions we've made in past, but that doesn't mean we're lesser of anything. All right. So we want to look what the scripture has to say over these next two weeks because he, God has spoken. He is the one who designed male and female. He has created singleness. He has created marriage. And he has something to say. And the culture has blended these ideas. The culture has kind of misconstrued what it means to be male and female. Even marriage, where now the norm is not necessarily marriage, but it's cohabitation or even divorce is, the, is more the rule, not the exception. 
And as believers, as those who find their identity in Christ, we want to redeem marriage back to its high standard and singleness to its high standard and maleness and femaleness back to its high standard in which God has, has created it. And we want to have, when we do get called to get married, we want to have redeeming marriages. And so what does that look like? That's what we're going to be talking about for the next two weeks. Because the reality is that God wants your marriage to speak of something. And He wants to bring you contentment and joy and satisfaction. And He's designed it to glorify Himself. That is His will for it. No matter how maybe oh, God could never redeem this. He absolutely can. Why? Because His Son is alive. And so there's always hope. There's always hope because of the gospel. And so we're going to look at what that looks like. We're not going to talk about how to have a perfect marriage. Because that does not exist. When you take two sinful people, put them in an apartment, and then throw some sinful pagan children involved, throw in a pagan goldfish and a cat, there becomes conflict. And so we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about fulfilling what God has for marriage. And working through those storms and those seasons of conflict and those seasons of struggle. And what does that look like? Right? So that's what we're going to look at. Redeeming marriage in that way. And I know some of you men are like, okay, enough with the intro. Let's get into the submission. Let's talk about that. All right? I set the clocks back ten minutes so we were here on time. I want that to get into that. Well, you're going to have to hold your horse this morning. Because the reality is this. All the commands that Paul gives in Ephesians 5, love, cherish, nourish, submission, all these things... They, they have a context. They have a foundation. And if you just jump into these things and you don't explain and, and kind of build upon, then really you have no framework. When you build a house, you don't start with the tile. You don't start with the shower curtain. You don't start with the colors of the living room. You build a foundation. And then, once that foundation is built and the structure is built, then we pick colors. Then we put shower curtains up. Then we pick cabinetry. The commands of Ephesians 5, those are the cabinets. Those are the tile. Those fit within a framework of a foundation. But if you don't have the foundation, then you don't have anything. So what we're going to do today is we are going to build a foundation for the commands, for the cabinets that will come next week. So you're going to have to hold your little horses for a week and come back next week for part two. But what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the beginning where the foundation was laid. So that when, we, when Paul gives a command to husbands, we understand, oh, I, I understand why now. I get it. Because the foundation is laid. So we're going to turn to the very, probably the easiest passage you'll ever have to turn to in your entire life. Genesis 1. Alright? Just open the Bible. First book of the Bible. First page. Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to build this foundation. And it starts with one of the most famous verses as you find it in the Bible. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? So we have nothing, and then we have something. We have God who eternally existed in great communion and fellowship and intimacy in the Trinity, self-glorifying one another. There was no struggle. There was no loneliness. There was no, I have a hole in my heart. Let's create something. Everything was perfect. But God yet designs and He wants to create and so he speaks, and thus, in doing, he creates. And I, I start there because, because we have to remember who the creator is. It ain't you. You are the clay. He is the potter. And who are you, O oh man, to question the potter? So when he creates marriage and maleness and femaleness, we don't, we don't say what we think. 
We look at what God, the Creator, has said. Got to start with the authority of what God has said. And so chapter 1, God creates. He does day 1, He does day 2, He does day 3, days day 4, days, does day 5, day 6. And at day 6, He creates all the living animals on the, on the planet, all the mammals and the birds and all these things. He creates all these things in days 5 and 6, the fish and the animals. And after that, there's a garden. But there's nobody to cultivate the garden. There's nobody to shepherd the animals. There's no one to have dominion. And so verse 26, key verse for us. God said, let us make man in our image. And the idea behind man there is mankind. Not just male at that point. Let us make mankind in our image. How do we know it's mankind? Look what he says. After our likeness and let them... It's a plural. It's a collective. Let mankind have dominion over fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Uh, Let's have mankind and let's give them dominion. There's two ideas there. There's this idea of stewardship and ruling and authority and they're to to kind of take care of God's creation. But the big piece here is that they're made in God's image and what theologians have called the imago Dei, the image of God. And there's all sorts of implications of what that means. We have will. We live forever. We reflect in a special way. All of the other creation, yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, but nothing like man. Man, mankind, reflects the glory of God in a special way. It's as if God says, I want a representative. I want someone to bring me glory in a a special way. I'm going to make mankind. They're going to be my ambassadors. They're going to be my representatives. They're going to have my authority. They're going to have a will and relationships and intimacy and intellect. They're going to reflect me. And the key verse here is verse 27. So he says, so God created mankind or man in his image. and the image of God, he created him. Key part, male and female, he created them. It's both maleness and femaleness. It's both masculine and feminine that are made in the image of God. It's not one versus the other. Both men and women have been made in God's image and thus have equal value. So our first piece of our foundation is that men and women are equal in value. Not because of their abilities, not because of what sex they are, their intellect, their age, what side of the tracks. Your value is based where? The fact that you're the image of God. Now we have a culture that bases value on what? What college you went to, how much money you have, how thin you are, how tall you are, how smart you are, how much money you have, what you can do or what you cannot do. But God's Word says, no, no, no. Male and female, young and old... Have value. Why? Because I made them in my image. And that is where the intrinsic value is. And we don't even have time to talk about the implications. But just simple things like like abortion. Why is abortion wrong? Not because it's a political issue. Because if you're made in God's image, whether or not you have a heartbeat or can move or survive on your own, if you are made in His image, you have value. It's based on value because of who you are and who you've been made by and what you've been made to reflect. This is why racism is evil. Because you're saying that the image of God doesn't rest on that person like it rests on this person. And that is evil. This is why classism, elitism, elitism, prejudice, all these things, they're sinful. This is why we love the whales. We love Moby Dick. We love the whales. But the whales are not as valuable as one human being. Because one human being has been made in the image of God. So save the baby whales, but guard preciously life of humans because men and women are made equal in God's eyes right and and here's what you have to understand when we say that 
Yes, there's equal value and yes, they're equal. But understand, equal does not mean same. Because we have a culture that thinks equal means same. No, no, no. Equal doesn't mean same. They're equal, but they are different. Male and female, verse 26. Right? Male and female. They're different. They are valuable, but they are different. And there's diversity there, just like the rest of creation. You have dark and light, there's diversity. You have, you have earth and you have water, there's diversity. You have space and sky and earth, you have diversity. You have diversity in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons. In man, you have diversity. You have male and female. It reflects God and there is difference. And there's a way where a man and a woman reflect God similarly, with we have emotion, we can have relationship, and we live fraternally. But there's also a way where we carry the image of God differently. Right? There, there's a difference between male and female. And that is good. Look, we, we, we get this for the most part. There's, there's a not, and a, ugh, I can't even speak. Anatomical differences. There is physical differences. There's emotional differences. Dare I say there are hormonal differences. Right? There's differences. And that's good. God has created male and female. And you reflect in a different way. So, for instance, females carry the image of God in a different way than males. And, and the idea and the concept of beauty. It's not that men cannot create things that are beautiful. It's not that they cannot be beautiful. But there's a specific way in which a woman carries the idea of God's beauty and how he creates differently. And we see this in things like a wedding. No one cares what old boy looks like. No one cares. Whether he got a haircut, whether he's ironed his suit, no one cares. They're not looking at him. Where are they looking? They're looking at the back. When he comes in, they're yawning. When she comes in, they stand. Right? The fancy music is for her. No one cares about what he wants. In fact, if you planned a wedding, you really have no say in that whole day, do you? Really, quite honestly, it has nothing to do with you. Right? You pay for the stamps and you lick them. Is that good, dear? You know, that's all you do. But the, we see this in the way ladies interact. How do I look? Do I look pretty? If a man says, how do I look? Does this shirt make me look fat? Yes. Who cares? I mean, you're, what are you, a woman? I mean, that's not a high idea. Okay, there's a difference in the way we carry that. There's a difference in what women are created in a nurturing way. It doesn't mean that men cannot nurture, but women are created and they, and they reflect the nurturing nature of God better than men. There's a difference in which men carry the idea of, of sacrifice and laying down their life. It's not that women can't sacrifice, but when in a dark alley, when somebody comes out and says, stick him up, if the man runs, does, does he expect the wife to get in front of the kids? No, the man gets in front of the kids. The man stands in the front, Right? There's just, a, there's just a way. When the Titanic's going down, it's not women and children to the rear. Men, get in the boats. Right? It's men, you sink, you die, women and children off. And there's something that reflects the nature of God there. I, I saw this when I, even as a young guy, I was like 14 years old, and my father forced me against my will to do Civil War reenacting. Because that was his hobby. So, so we're fighting the, the war, as he would call it, of northern aggression. All right? So we're fighting. And I'm like, I hate this thing. I want to be home. But he makes me go. And so we go to Manassas, the Battle of Manassas. Right? And we're fighting this thing. And I'm just, I just is not my thing. But he loves it. Right? So we're fighting. And then, and then all of a sudden, something snaps in me. And, and apparently when you would take the other side's flag, that, you know, that was a sign of 
you know, you've conquered them and you've beat them. And so there's the flag of the other team. And something rises up in me, and I don't know what it was, but I run across the field in the middle of this battle. I grab this flag, and the guys are wrestling me, and I die. And everyone cheers. They love it about it. It's like, look what he did. He laid out his life to try to get the flag, and I don't even know what happened. It's like a blur to me right now. But there's something in a, in a guy that just rises up, and he wants to go, take it. And, and it's part of being male. Even young boys. What's the worst thing for a young boy? To have, be on the, the monkey bars and have mom under, underneath him saying, Don't fall. Don't fall, little Johnny. He would rather break his neck than have his mom catch him. What, how does the dad respond? Eh, he'll be fine. Rub some dirt on it. He'll be great. You're right? There's a difference. There's a distinction. And it is good. Male and female. Equal in God's eyes. Created in the image of God. But yet there's differences. And that's a good thing. At the end of chapter 1, verse 31, God saw that it was good. It was very good. This is how God has created it. And it's a foundational piece. Because we have a culture that when they hear equal, they hear same. No, no, no. Equal but different. And good. And that's huge because it's going to tether the core responsibilities of what looks like in marriage to, to who we are, to our maleness, to our femaleness. Right? And so... First piece, an essential piece. And, and why that's important, we, we'll talk specific application next week. It's important because if you're a husband and you're treating your wife as less than equal, then you need to repent. Because Peter says she is a co-heir of the grace of life. If you're looking at that, that little kid and thinking, why is he taking up a seat? You're missing the fact that that child has, has just as much value in God's eyes as you do. Just because you may have a job or you can do more, they are made in God's image. That that lady who's got the baby in the back that's crying, you're just wishing that they would go away into the other room. You know what? We have a crying mom's room because we want to be sensitive to that. But that little baby is made in the image of God and has value. That person that you're judging because they're a different race or they're a different socioeconomic class or maybe they didn't come up and get raised like you and you're judging them because they don't do it like you do, that person has value. Because they're made in God's image. And so you better be very careful. Alright? So we, we, we understand both male and female, all ages, all races have equal value in God. It's part of our core design. So chapter 2, we're going to see our second piece. And, and really chapter 2, what chapter 1 is, is a broad stroke. Here's the big creation story. Chapter 2 zooms in on the creation story. Alright? It kind of gives you a little bit more specifics. It kind of zooms in specifically on day 6. So jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, and it's singular now. He's taking Adam. And he put him, Adam, in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, and again, it's singular. It's not both of them. You, Adam, may surely eat of the tree, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what you see here is God is speaking directly to Adam. And he's giving him kind of two big ideas. Number one, he's giving him a job. You need to work the garden. Number two, you, it gives him some instructions. You cannot eat from that tree that's in the middle. And the big question you've got to ask is, okay, great. He's been given authority. He's been given instructions. Where's Eve? Eve does not yet exist. She's not been created. He said, how do you know? Because look what he says next, verse 18. Then... Then, i.e. after, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. 
He has been alone at this point. God has given him instruction and a task, and he has been alone. And it is not good that he is alone. Not because he's going to eat Snickers and wear dirty clothes all week long, okay? Because in being alone, he cannot function and do what God has called him to do. God has given him a task. He's given him instructions. He's given him a job to do. And he cannot do it. He is helpless without a helper. And so what does God do? God gives him a helper that is fit for him. And I know that that word helper, it comes across as patronizing and negative because we have this movie called The Help and it just seems negative. But that is not the meaning of the Hebrew word. The word helper, ezer, is one of strength, is one of robustness. It's a word of giving ability to, enabling. It's power. Who in the, whole, who in the New Testament is called the helper? The Holy Spirit. Is that a negative word for him? No. Is it, a, is it a negative connotation? No, it's an enabling. It is a powerful thing. In fact, you cannot do it, Jesus says, without the helper. And he's saying the man cannot function. He cannot do what I've asked him to do without the powerful helper that I'm going to create for him. And she will be fit for him. She is the perfect counterpart. She is this corresponding strength. She's indispensable as his complement. He can't do what he, I've called him to do, but now he will be enabled because I will give him a strong helper. And now they can function. And so he does. He calls them to fall asleep, verse 21. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up in a place with flesh, and that rib the Lord had God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And here's this beautiful picture. Then the man said, At last. This is the Hebrew is emphatic. It's like, Woo! At last! And it's funny because he's only been alive for like four hours. Alright? You're like, At last what? Are you that lonely really i mean but what's been going on is this if you read the few verses before god is bringing these animals to adam and he's all by himself and he's bringing you know daddy and mommy hippo and he's saying okay that's going to be called a hippopotamus and he brings daddy and mommy labrador and he says that's going to be a labrador and he brings daddy and mommy you know fish or whatever i don't know if he got them out of the water or what but he calls them fish and he's naming all these animals and adam is seeing male and female male and female hey What's the deal? Everyone's got a partner but me. I mean, this dog is nice, but it ain't, it ain't the same thing. And so when God brings in this helper, he's like, whoa, man, this is good. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She is like me, but she is not like me. She shall be called woman, isha in the Hebrew, because she was taken out of ish, man. And what you see is this, this, this unity, but this diversity this, this compliment, right? This, this great helper. And you got, again, you ask the question, why does God do it like this? I mean, everything else he creates two at a time. Hippos, giraffes, seagulls, grasshoppers, whatever. Everything else gets two at a time, right? Why does he not do that with the man? Because he is trying to teach a principle. Just like, why doesn't he just create in seven days? I mean, why does he do create in seven days? Why didn't he just go, boop, creation, done. In six days he creates, and seventh day he rests. Why? He's teaching a principle. On the seventh day, man is to rest. You're supposed to work six days, and you're supposed to rest and take a break. It's good for you. He taught a principle. He does it this way because he is teaching a principle. Because in the creation, there is order. 
There is order in, in the universe. There is order in, in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, equal but different. There is order. And that's the second principle that we build on. That in the creation there is a divine order. There's a divine order. And the order is this. God has called the husband to, to lead and to lovingly shepherd his wife. And together as equals they are to govern creation. God calls the husband to lead and be the head of the family and love his wife and shepherd her. And together as equals, they lead and have dominion over creation. That is the divine order. It is based on the Godhead. God the Father leads God the Son who sends the Spirit. They're equal, but there's order. And it is a beautiful picture. And, and Adam understands this. What's the first thing he does? He, call, he names her. God doesn't say, this is called woman, Adam. Who names her? Adam names her. He says, this is called woman. It's a sign of authority right off the bat. It's not bad. It's good. But it's foundational to understanding it. And then he gives this great, great verse, which is throughout the scripture. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There has now been two. Now they are one. Now there is unity and intimacy and vulnerability and life on life sharing. He is lovingly leading. She's empowering with her strength. And the conclusion is, and they were naked and not ashamed. There's no fear. There's no regret. There's no, he's going to take advantage of me. There's no, she's going to hurt me. There's absolute trust and oneness. They're celebrating the unity and diversity. They're celebrating being made in the image of God. They are embracing their roles. They're beautifully reflecting God as image of God, as unity and diversity. And that's what we should do. And again, this is next week's sermon, what that looks like. But look, the culture says one thing about what it means to be male and female. The culture says one thing about what it says to be husband and wife. The scripture says another. Who are you going to believe? The one who created it? The one who loves you? The one who it's supposed to reflect? Or one who wants to destroy it? Who wants to redefine what God has done? Embracing. Embracing the order that God has created. Because it's good. Again, everything he makes is good. And, and really, you just wish that the Bible would end here. Because if they just would have done what they were told, there'd be two chapters in the Bible, right? That'd be it. It was great. We all lived happily ever after. They had lots of kids. We're all brothers and sisters running around naked in the garden. That's what it would be. But that's not what it says. Because the train wreck of the universe is in the next verse. Now, the serpent which is Satan taking the form of a snake. Satan, the serpent, was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he speaks to the woman now. And notice what he, what he does. He's been doing it for 6,000 years. He causes people to question God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that, is that what God said? Eve. And, and she's been informed by her husband because he's told her. And remember, she wasn't there, but she's been informed. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And notice what she adds, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, God didn't say they couldn't touch it. For all we knew, they could do cartwheels, build a treehouse, throw the fruit around, chuck it around the garden, have fun with it. And God never said, Don't touch it. God said, Don't eat it. Now, whether they built this little fence around the law or what, who knows? But they don't quote exactly, but... The point is this, the little fence that they've created, and I'm going to help them. Verse 4, because now Satan comes at it full steam, and he's calling God a liar. The serpent said to the woman, you, excuse me, the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. 
i.e. God's lying to you. That's not true, Eve. You will not die. And, and his lie is the worst kind of a lie. It's a little bit of a lie and a little bit of truth mixed. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. That is true. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is true. You'll, you, you, Eve, you will get to know what God knows. You'll, what, you'll know what evil is. You'll know what good is. Don't you want to know that, Eve? God is going to keep that from you. Now, he leaves out the part that they can't handle that knowledge, that that knowledge will destroy them, that it's too much for them to bear. He doesn't tell them that. He says, no, 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 you, you, God is keeping something from you, and he, he doesn't want your best. And she buys it, hook, line, and sinker, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, notice those three things, the same thing Satan's been doing again for 6,000 years, the lust of the flesh... Right? She saw it was a delight. It was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was a delight to the eyes. And there was a desire to make one wise, the pride of life. The three things Satan's been going since Genesis 3. She took of its fruit and she ate. And then here's the kicker. And she also gave some to her husband who was what? Who was off playing with the elephants and building tree houses? Who was with her. The whole time, Adam is just standing there, arms crossed. And in her greatest need, in the time of her greatest challenge, what is he doing? He is standing there with his arms crossed, watching it unfold. And she takes and eats. And he's got to be thinking, God said she was going to die. Well, we will see. She takes a bite. Nothing happens. She's not dead. She says, Adam, this is good stuff. Take some of this. He takes a bite. And he eats and he follows her. Right? And boom. Creation destroyed. The fall. Right? And, and again, look what just in just a little bit of twisting of God's words and a little bit of deceit. What has the enemy done to the divine order? It was supposed to be God leading the man who lovingly leads his wife and they shepherd creation together. Now, the creation is leading the wife who is leading her husband to disobey God. See how he's flipped it upside down with just a little bit? He's completely flipped the divine order. Because Satan's desire is to destroy what God has made. And there they are. And one of the most anticlimactic verses in all the scripture, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. They were expecting enlightenment. They were expecting excitement to be like God. And instead they get to feel things they've never felt before. Shame. Guilt. Fear, isolation. And because they feel it, they sew fig leaves together and make themselves loincloths. Like I got a fig tree, kind of, like a fig stick in my backyard. It's not good for clothes, I'm telling you. All right? It's silly. But see, this is what happens when shame and guilt... And what does man do to try to cover his shame and guilt? Man-made fig fig leaf religion. And what they don't know is that No fig leaf is going to deal with what they have to deal with. They're going to need someone to come from the outside. They're going to need grace. They're going to need grace. Right? So what happens? Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Something that they got to experience every day. God starts walking in the garden with them. And typically what would happen probably is they hear God coming and what do they do? They would run to God and they would enjoy God and they would talk and walk and look at creation and have great fellowship and intimacy. Now what's going on? They hear God and they go, whoop. 
And, and this is how dumb sin makes us. They think that they can hide in a bush that God created. Maybe they think they got their camo, you know, underoos on now. They got camo, you know, let's look like trees. Adam, stay still. I mean, I don't know what they're thinking. But not only does sin enter, but stupidity and foolishness enter. And God calls to them. Right? He calls them. But the Lord God called to man. He calls to who? He calls to the man, verse 9. Why? Because he's supposed to be loving and leading and protecting. Where are you? And Adam said, I heard, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. There's fear now dominating. And God asks the question, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And what does Adam do? He is supposed to love. He's supposed to shepherd. He's supposed to lead. He's supposed to protect. He's supposed to accept responsibility. And in his first chance he gets, he throws his wife under the bus. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. God, it's probably not a great time to talk about this. But now that you ask, you know how she is. When she gets her mind set on something, you, no one is stopping her. And that's what happened. And let me just remind you, God, I don't mean to bring this up, but you're the one that gave her to me. This, this is really not my deal, God, but this is on you because you gave me the woman. Right? And in the heart of self-preservation, what does he do? He pushes his wife out in front of the bus. Instead of taking responsibility, he shirks it. And this is the first time in all the scripture, it's not in the text, it's implied that the look was given. What are you talking about? Right? The woman looks over at her husband. There she is. Now she's vulnerable. She's not protected. And so God says to her, what have you done? And the woman does, learns from her husband very well and she shirks the responsibility too. The serpent deceived me and I ate. That creature that you created, God, your creation... It's his fault. It's your fault. You made it. You made the snake. You made the serpent. Not my fault. Self-preservation. Any marriages have struggles with self-preservation, with blaming other people? It's that man's fault. If he would just do this. It's that woman's fault if she would just do this. Any blame game going on in the homes? You can thank Adam and Eve. Because that's where it started. And, And what you see is our third foundational principle this morning that we have to understand when we talk about redeeming marriage. And it's this. There are core temptations that each man and woman face. It's part of your spiritual DNA ever since the garden now. There's core things that men will be tempted and struggle with. There's core things that women will be tempted to be struggle with. And, and we have to recognize them. And we get them from Adam and Eve, our first father and our first mother. What is the woman's, what is the core temptation here? She, she's tempted and hears God isn't good. Your husband, God is holding you back. You need to be in charge of your life. They're just jealous of you, Eve. You're, you have strength. You, you're the strong one here. And it seems very rational to her. She evaluates what she's been given, the world she's in. And she's like, I'm, yeah, I'm getting the shaft. I need to be like God. I need to make decisions that are going to make my life better. I need to be thinking about me. Right? And so what she does is she moves out from her protective cover, not only of her husband's authority, but God's authority. She says, I don't need God and I don't need no man. 
I'm going to do, no one else is telling me about this whole be like God thing. I got to listen to this snake. He knows what's going on. He's, he's, his best is for me. I need to be alone here. I need to do my thing. And her core temptation is to be independent of God and the authority of the headship of her husband. That's her core temptation. Right? To bucket, to say, no, 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 I don't, want, I, don't, I don't want what he's got. I don't want him leading. He doesn't know what he's doing. I want to be in charge. And it's not that all women are rebellious. and no, That's not what I'm saying. But what is true is there's a temptation at a core. Ladies, you have to understand, there's going to be a pull and there's going to be a push from the culture for you to buck what God has to say and for you to go out and get it on your own because no one else cares about you. Only you have to do it on your own. And that is a core temptation that women have been facing. I do a lot of marriage counseling. You can talk to Harry, our marriage counselor. And one of that core struggle is to say, I, he doesn't know what he's doing. I need to do this because he's not going to do it. I need to do this because this. I need to be out for me. And it is, it is part of the DNA of what's going on. And God, in, in, in the judgments for these sins, when he talks to the lady, he says to the woman, verse 16, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbearing. I mean, that's an amen, right? I mean, I've, I've been there four times. That's true. I mean, you know, epidurals aside, that's, that's a big deal. All right? But secondly, he says this, Your desire shall be for your husband. That word desire is not you're going to love him and long for him. The idea is you're going to want to control him. And you go, oh, you say, where do you get that? Chapter 4, verse 7. You just flip over the paragraph the next page. When God is talking to Cain and he said, Cain, Cain, sin's desire is for you. Right? It's not talking about good things. It's desire is to control you. It's desire is to dominate you. But you must rule over it. You must control it, Cain, because it's trying to control you. Same word back in 16. Your desire, ladies, is going to be to control, to manipulate, to be independent, to seize the control and not let him lead. But, he will rule over you. And rule is, is a harsh word. It is not a Christian word. It is not a headship word. And this is what happens in the world. And you can say, well, what do you mean by that? Go anywhere in the world and you will see that men are domineering over women. In this country, a hundred years ago, women couldn't even vote. Right? I mean, to this day, around the world, there's women who have no rights. They have to walk around with, with masks on just to protect themselves. You don't hear about a lady locking three men up in her basement. You hear about some sicko man locking three women up in his basement. You don't hear a lot about, you know, a woman beating up her husband. Because most men wouldn't admit it, even if it did happen, Right? But you hear all the time and go all across the world and men are beating and using their strength and advantage to domineer and rule. And it is part of the fall. It's part of of, of the repercussions of sin. And understanding this is going to be a pull for some of y'all, more some than others, has nothing to do with personality, has nothing to do with being more more quiet or more, you know, exuberant or more outgoing, has everything to do with just part of your spiritual DNA that you, you just want to question authority. I want to question what God, I don't really buy that. That's going to be part of the, the, the temptation there. But what about the man? What is his core temptation? What is his core sin? He's got none. Let's move on to the uh, snake, right? <laughs> For men, our core temptation is passivity. What does Adam do? He sits there with his arms crossed and does nothing. Right? He wants to pass the buck. He wants to pass the blame. And men have it in their core being to just be passive. To just sit back and let it happen and let it fall apart. And here's what we see in our culture especially. Some men can be incredibly 
active and successful in all the wrong areas. They can build a company and work 80 hours a week and be super successful and be able to build big houses and have big cars, but they're successful in everything that doesn't really matter because they don't lead their wives and they don't love and cherish their children and they let her do it all and they just sit there with a remote in hand and think if they pay the mortgage that they're leaders. They can teach the kid to throw a ball, but they never mention God in their context with their kids, or they never pray with the kids or for their kids. They lead in all the wrong areas, and they're passive in all the important areas. And there's an incredible ability for men, especially in this culture, to be successful in all the wrong things, and to be passive in everything that matters. And that is just the core of men. And you see it with men who are play seven hours of Final Fantasy and they'll get to the top of the world. But the last time they prayed for their kids was six years ago. The last time they took their wife on a date and asked her how she was doing spiritually was when they were dating. Right? And so that's the core for men. To pull away. And you put the two together and what do you get? I mean, you get Mentos and Coke. <laughs> right? You get hot grease and water. An explosion. Because you got a, a guy who is just satisfied with the status quo and you have a lady who wants to be in charge and take control and go and do all these things and, and, and he's like, great, I'll let her do that. I'll, great, I'll sit here on the couch. And she's like, great, he'll let me do it all. He'll let me be in charge and make all the shots. And it's fine at first, y'all. It's always fine at first. Five years down the road, ten years down the road when there's little ones running around, she's exhausted because she's doing everything. And every time she asks, he's sitting there, And when she sends the kids, they say, ask your mother. Ask your mom, what does she think? And he has no ability to lead now because he has no respect from himself. And his wife doesn't respect him because he hasn't been leading. And she feels like he doesn't love me because if he loved me, he would take control of this. And he would help me and he would shepherd me and he would serve like I'm serving. But he doesn't feel the ability because she's hamstrung him because she just always wants to take control. And you have boom. And you wonder why there's issues in marriages. Because these are the core temptations we face. And if you have been married, you see it in your marriage, I guarantee. And it's not that we just want to feel bad about ourselves. We just want to be able to identify these things so that we can resist the devil. So that we can not buy the lies and we can lovingly shepherd and we can come alongside. And we'll look specifically at the commands next week. But think about it. The, the main command for the wife is that she respects her husband. And the main command for the husband is that he loves. Think about it. If your tendency is to pull away from your husband, then what's the natural opposite? Respect him. If you're, if you're tempted to be passive men, what's the natural command? Pursue and love. And so the commands fit in context of the core temptations. That's why he gives them. See, that's all based on the fact that we're equal, there's an order, and here's where we struggle. Now I can give you the commands because you understand these things. But that's why we go back to the foundation and don't just give commands. Because what men do is they will abuse the commands. Women should be solid. They should be submissive. And they don't take it in the context of equality, order, and where our temptations are. That's why we do this today. That's why I'll take an extra week just so to build a foundation so you understand. This is not God saying, yeah, we're going to be harsh in this. This is God saying, this is how I've designed it. This is how it's good. And we want to redeem marriages and we want to redeem families and we want to redeem what it means to be male and female and see that God has created it as good. And I know it's countercultural to some of y'all, but that doesn't mean it's not true because the scripture is true. And let God be called true and everyone else a liar. Right? So the foundation of equality and an order 
and core temptations. And that leads to the final and really the most important foundation. And and it's hinted at here in verse 21, right, of chapter 3. Look at how it closes the chapter. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. So how does that tell us anything? Because they got these little fig leaves on, right? And they look silly. And God says, no, no, no. You can't cover your shame. And you cannot cover your guilt. I have to do that for you. And so God made for Adam and his wife garments. Let me ask you a question. How did he make garments of skins? He had to kill something. He had to kill something. Something he had just created. Something that was good and perfect and completely innocent. This animal has no clue what's going on. And God has to grab this animal and he has to slaughter it. And it doesn't say what kind of animal it is, but I bet my 401k is a lamb. And he has to take this innocent animal and he kills it and then he skins it. And then God brings coverings for his rebellious children. And what does that picture? It pictures exactly what's going to take place 4,000 years later. It pictures what is prophesied here in verse 15. When God is speaking to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he, that is the seed of the woman, will bruise your head, Satan. He's going to crush your head, even though you're going to bruise his heel. What did Christ do? He was born of the seed of a woman, the virgin. And he crushed the head of the serpent, even though the serpent bites his heel. But who ends up on top? The seed of the woman. He crushes the serpent. And the only way we can have ultimately a foundation is because of Christ. It's because of the cross. If someone comes from outside and throws away the silly fig leaf religion and kills an innocent lamb in your place and then covers you with his skin. And that's exactly what God the Father does to God the Son. He sends the lamb to be slaughtered for your sin and for mine. He closes you in his righteousness because you have just fig leaves and you run around silly. And so he has to do it all. And this is the most important piece. This is the foundation. Everything else here, you know what? It doesn't matter. If it's not built on top of the cross... It means nothing. That's where it starts. In fact, where Paul's going to go next week is he's going to say, Women, here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow Christ. I want you to follow Christ. Men, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love her like Christ. I want you to nourish her like Christ. I want you to serve her like Christ. It all comes back to Christ. If you want to redeem marriage, marriage is about Christ. It is about what He has done. It is built on the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Savior, who died on a cross and rose again. And He is the foundation. And everything else doesn't matter. In fact, where Paul's going to end at the end of chapter 5, he's going to say this. Here's the summary. He's going to quote Genesis 2. For this reason, a father, a man leaves his father and mother. He clings to his wife. The two become one. And he makes a profound statement. He said, this mystery... Is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Jesus and the church. That marriage is actually a picture of Jesus and the church, the bride and her Savior. It's built upon 
what Christ has done. And if we're going to redeem marriage, I don't care if you think, well, I've been married 25 years and it is in the pits. Because Jesus died and rose again, there is hope. And you need to believe that. You need to understand that. You say, there's no hope for my husband. I'm married to a lost guy. does not matter. You could be single and say, I, I just I don't understand how it is to be pure. In your singleness, Jesus is the model. In your maleness, Jesus is the model. In your femaleness, in your being a wife, Jesus is the model. The foundation for this marriage is built on Christ. Then we can understand we are equal. There's roles. There's temptations. But the only way to face the temptations is to run back to the cross. It all comes down to the cross, y'all. And so if you hear nothing else today... Understand that there is one who died on a cross. And this is the beauty of Scripture. Do you know what Paul calls Jesus? The second Adam. Why would he say that? Because the first Adam bolowed the whole deal. But they were both, both Adams, both the first and the second, were both tempted in the garden. The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Adam blew it. Jesus did not. They were both tempted by trees, the knowledge of good and evil, and Calvary's cross. Adam blew it. Jesus did not. So uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of what Adam could not do. And he is the foundation for marriage. And he is the model for marriage. And he is the example for marriage. And he empowers marriage. So look to the cross. And we're going to, Lord willing, next week we're going to be very specific. And I hope to be very Practical. I don't want to just kind of talk, well, love, what is love? I want to get down and very simple. So we're just going to try to be hopefully very practical so that we can kind of get some flushing out of what this looks like. But understanding those commands and those, those challenges in light of this, this is what it is. On the cross of Christ, equal in value, distinct in order, with core struggles that can only be redeemed and dealt with by Christ in the cross. So let's worship and pray. Uh, and think about those things as we, as we think about our Redeemer. Father, I thank you for your Son. I thank you for His cross. I thank you for hope in Him and Him alone. We thank you that we re- He redeemed us from the curse of the law. That He redeems marriage. And I know there's struggles. And I know there's single folks that want to be married. And I know there's married folks that, that regret things and have made mistakes. And we got people all over the map. And we got people struggling with all sorts of issues. But Lord, Your, your, your cross gives us hope. May we look to you as our model for forgiveness, for submission, for love, for oneness, for unity and diversity, for everything, for our hope. And I know that there's people that think there's no hope, but Lord, show them that there is. That you redeem, that you rescue, that you restore. You're the only one who can because fig leaves ain't going to cut it. Only if you clothe us, only if you empower us. So it's in your name we pray these things and we worship you. Amen. You guys would stand as we worship.